nostalgic driving back up into Milton, seeing the old home place, as it were. Uh, you know, what was it, four years, more or less, we lived uh, over on this side of town, I think it was, something like that, <laughs> roughly. But uh, yeah, it's great to be back, and uh, great to see everyone, and uh, more importantly, it was, it's great to, to worship the Lord with you. Uh, it's wonderful, and Tony, that was a blessing, genuinely, that really was. I absolutely loved meditating on those words. I'd like to look in the Word of God uh, together in Matthew 23. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, I was here for just a little while, a few years, working as uh, Pastor David's uh, assistant for a while, and moved on to, uh, to Blurton back in 2016, I think it was. And uh, we've been over in Heron Cross at Blurton Baptist Church uh, ever since then. And uh, God's at work. You know, that's, that's the exciting thing is that God is always doing a work. God always has a people. And where the Word of God and the Gospel is preached, God is always working. And the Spirit of God is always moving. And uh, it's, a, it's a blessing and a privilege to be part of, of, of God's work. And um, I'm excited about the days ahead uh, for, for you because uh, one of my good friends is coming to be your pastor. And uh, looking forward to, uh, to Kevy being a little bit closer uh, to, to, to me again and his family, with, uh, with uh, Caden and Addison as well, and Claire being around. I guess Claire, we can throw her in there too, lump her in. Uh, but I want to go to the Word of God. Because I love the Gospel of Matthew. On Sunday mornings for the past, uh, probably longer than we should have been, uh, we've been going through uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And we are in the 20, at the end of the 23rd chapter of Matthew that I was able to preach this morning. And I was going to preach a completely different message this evening and uh, just got all excited about what I preached this morning and thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could share this with someone else? As well, So this is not a reheated message. I don't want you to think I'm preaching it just because it's what I preached this morning. Um, I was just excited about it and thought it would be wonderful to be able to uh, share it again. So in Matthew chapter 23, I'd like to look at verses 37 to 39. And I would like to look at Jesus' farewell to Israel. Jesus' farewell to Israel. Beginning in verse number 37, it says, O Jerusalem... Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth, so you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And I trust that God will add his blessing to his precious word. I think it is important to, that as we approach a passage like this, that we uh, view it in the ultimate context in which it comes. You know, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, imagine, to the shouts and acclamations of the crowds. What were they saying? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that was a quotation from Psalm 118. Several different things that happened in that portion of Scripture that were fulfillment of Psalm uh, 118. 
And um, this, was, this was really should have been the coronation of the king. It should have been the coronation of the king of kings, but it was superficial and short-lived. And then we get to chapter 23, and chapter 23 has been one long day from Matthew 21. Matthew 21, verse number 12, Jesus enters into the temple and He purged the den of thieves, restoring it to the house of prayer, His Father's house. He spent the night at His friend's house uh, in Bethany, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then on the way back after cursing the fig tree and all of that and seeing uh, the, the results of that, in Matthew 21, 23, He enters into the temple a second time and the temple appears to have remained cleansed as Jesus begins preaching and addressing the crowds, including the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and all of these people who were trying to shut the mouth of the Messiah. Also, His own disciples were there as well. Uh, this, this sermon has stretched from chapter 21, verse 23, to the end of this chapter 23. In fact, this is our Lord's last sermon during His earthly ministry. This is His last public sermon. In Matthew chapter 4, uh, four and verse number 17, the Bible says that from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this was the beginning of His earthly ministry. When He came out of that wilderness victorious over the temptations of the devil, and He began to declare, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And at that moment, he entered into his preaching and teaching ministry. And this was, uh, this was a game changer. Jesus taught on a variety of issues and subjects. He taught uh, to uh, different individuals and different crowds. But the theme always contributes to the one overlying theme, which is this. The king and his kingdom. The king and his kingdom. Indeed, this is the theme of the Gospel of Matthew. And, and, and in the previous chapter, the Jewish Messiah has warned the crowds against the Pharisees and their teachings uh, that rejected the Messiah. And he's pronounced in, in this chapter earlier, eight scathing woes upon the Pharisees. He, he exposed them for who they truly were. They were enemies of God, not friends of God. In the presence of the multitude... And uh, it won't be long indeed before that multitude is persuaded by the Pharisees in the presence of Pontius Pilate to reject Him as well. Therefore, Jesus ends His last public sermon by pronouncing condemnation upon Israel. And we start with that. The three things that we'll look at. The condemnation, the compassion, and uh, the comfort. Let's start with the, the condemnation. Verse number 37 again. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Then in the beginning of verse, actually verse number 38, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Desolate. Now let's begin by noting that Jerusalem here represents the nation of Israel as a whole. You see, he's not looking at Jerusalem and saying, oh, you poor city. He's looking at Jerusalem as a representative of the whole nation. He is not just lamenting the city of Jerusalem. He is lamenting the nation of Israel. 
the Jewish Messiah had come and had not been received. It's also worth noting that uh, repetition was one of the key tools of a teacher in ancient Israel, and still is in Israel to this day, and to all teachers really, repetition is key. And, uh, you know, the teacher was always trying to place an emphasis when repeating things. We find this all throughout the Scripture, and there were even some times when in the Old Testament, names were repeated as a means of mourning. For example, David, when Solomon, or when, when Absalom was dead. Absalom, my son! Absalom, my son! My son! Lamenting and mourning his son. And Jesus is lamenting and mourning the nation of Israel in our passage because he in his omniscience knows that Israel will soon be destroyed. Why? Because they killed the prophets. They stoned those who were sent. In the previous passage, he talks about Adam and, uh, and Zechariah. So from the first prophet in the Old Testament to the last prophet of the Old Testament. They killed them all. And he says, that's unforgivable. And he says, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking that you wouldn't have done the same. And he says in the previous passage, I know that you would have done the same because you're scheming to kill me now. And this nation was corrupt at its heart because it rejected the leadership and guidance of God and the Holy Spirit. And now they were going to reject Him as their King. So why was he really mourning? Look in verse number 38. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. That word desolate is significant. It means an empty wasteland. An empty wasteland. And I think there's a twofold significance uh, in this. I, I, I think first off, just to, to look at it from the historical standpoint, in about 40 years after Jesus says this, uh, Titus Vespasian is going to come into Jerusalem in 70 AD and is going to absolutely ransack Israel, and, or Ju Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be burnt to the ground. The only thing that is going to survive this attack is going to be the western wall and one tower. So as people would pass by Jerusalem, it would not even look like it was ever inhabited before if they had not known it. It looked like absolute ruins and rubble. And this was coming upon them. Their house would soon be left desolate. They'd killed prophet after prophet. They had rejected the Messiah and would soon do so in one final act. This was... The ultimate betrayal. This was high treason of the highest order. So he says to them, your house is left to you an empty wasteland. And here's the second and probably uh, a primary meaning of a desolate house. I think the word house is significant. House is a term used for the temple in Jerusalem all throughout Scripture. In fact, in this one chapter alone, it refers to the temple as a house twice before this. The house of prayer, my father's house. Um, so, so this is synonymous. Historically, in Scripture, the temple had been the place where the presence of God and His Shekinah glory dwelt. And this is what made Israel most unique. It was not all their dietary laws. It was not uh, the, the, their strange dress and all of their commandments that they had. What made Israel unique was that God's presence dwelt among them. The glory of God was in their midst. 
This was the Father's house. However, in verse number 38, Jesus refers to the temple in new terms. Notice He says, Your house is left to you desolate. I think this is significant when we get into chapter 24 and verse number 1, because it says in verse number 1, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Jesus left the temple. The glory of God was leaving. Hold your place here and look back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, please. 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll read verses 21 and 22, please. Now, the, the, the backstory to this is that the Ark of the Covenant had been uh, taken, had been stolen away. It was, it was missing from Israel. And this, as we said, this was very important to their existence. This is what defined them. And so, uh, prophetically, when we get to the end uh, of, this, of this passage, we find that uh, Phineas's wife uh, gives a bit of a, uh, a prophecy, really, in naming her her child here. It says in verse number 1, And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken away. Friends, when Jesus walked out of the temple, the glory of God glory of the Lord departed from the temple. They had broken their covenant with their God because they had rejected their king and were guilty of high treason. Israel became Ichabod. Israel became Ichabod. You know what Ichabod means? No glory. The glory had been removed. Ichabod uh, was, was an evidence that Israel and the temple were destroyed. This was evidence of the fact that the glory had been taken away. It was destroyed, and, and to this day, the temple is yet to be rebuilt. What a condemnation. But let's, let's sprint toward the compassion. Let's go straight into the compassion. You know, swift, swift condemnation and punishment was coming upon Israel. Uh, and, and they... They were deserving of that. Yet in pronouncing their judgment, our gentle and lowly Lord Jesus was still filled with love and compassion for the children of Israel. And we see that at the end of verse number 37. It says, How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Now this is one of the attributes that are unique to God and His nature. He can simultaneously be angry, loving, holy, just, and grieved all at the same time. The Bible tells us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And though He is just and holy, 
God must punish sin and injustice. He's the only one qualified to do so with perfect judgment. But friends, He is never, ever devoid of the love that is intrinsic to His nature. Never devoid of love. And I know this because Scripture defines God this way. God is love. Look in Romans chapter 5, please. We'll come back to Matthew 23 in a few moments. But Romans chapter 5 and verses 6 to 11. I think these are significant New Testament passages here. What is the New Testament significance of this? Well, beginning in verse number 6. For when we were yet without strength, Romans 5 and verse 6, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. You know, I would have to really think more than twice about taking a bullet for a good guy. Got to be honest with you. I kind of like my life. I've got a pretty good gig here. I like it. My family's wonderful. I like what I do. I enjoy being alive. I really have to think hard about taking a bullet for somebody that was a good person. Yet peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But notice this. But God commended His love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, we weren't even good. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus, by whom we have received the atonement. Now my friends, I was going to say I don't know about you, but I do know about you. You're the same as me. I, I was a lawbreaker, right? God gave me His law, and I broke it over and over and over again, voluntarily. In fact, I kind of loved doing it as a sinner. And I deserved for the full wrath of the judge to come down upon me, and me being sent to his prison hell. But God in love came and lived the life that I should have lived and died the death that I deserved to die. And you know what he did? He paid my fine. I received this payment from someone who didn't deserve to die. But he died in my place. I was not deserving of it, but He paid my fine, and by grace through faith, my case has been dismissed. And now God sees me as a fully acquitted, perfect individual in Him. No record of that past whatsoever. Those sins have been blotted out. I have been justified, which means that God sees me just if I'd never been a sinner to begin with. And that's all because in judgment, God still loved me. That whilst I deserved to be judged and condemned in love, Christ in pity and compassion 
came and lived my life and died my death so that I could go free. In New Testament terms, do you know what this is saying? This passage in Matthew 23. If God was devoid of love and judgment, then not a single one of us in this room today would be saved. By the grace of God, I was eternally and irrevocably acquitted of my crimes. I deserve to pay for those. And it's all because in the midst of judgment, God still loves. And this brings us to the comfort. Where was the comfort? Was there any comfort for Israel at all in this? Well, not in the immediate. There was no present comfort for those who were present that day. But there was future comfort for the nation as a whole. Look in verse number 39 again. Back in Matthew 23. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till, I shall, till you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Again, the people tried to fulfill this prophecy from Micah, waving their palm branches and laying down their garments before him, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it was all superficial. And what Jesus is saying here is that someday this prophecy is going to be fulfilled in its totality. It's going to be totally fulfilled someday. Someday He will return to repentance and acceptance of Him as Messiah. Someday there will be a remnant of believing people who receive Him of His own people. I'd like to look at two Old Testament uh, prophecies. Well, well, one Old Testament prophecy. I'll spare you the other, okay? But Zechariah, and I said I'll spare you, but I gave you one of the most difficult passages to find in the Old Testament. Zechariah. And uh, in Zechariah uh, chapter 12 and verse number 10, yeah, chapter 12 and verse number 10, uh, this, is, this is a fantastic prophecy. Well, there is no 12.10. Oh, yeah, there is. Sorry. I'm all flipped about here. I thought I had pulled a classic Matt Green and wrote down the wrong reference. But alas, I was correct. It says in verse number 10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Wow. Someday. Now what this means is that Lord, the Lord has to be literally visibly returning to the earth someday. And someday the Lord is 
returning. And someday the nation of Israel will look upon the One whom they have pierced. They were responsible for Him being nailed to the cross. And I believe bearing the wounds of Calvary someday, Jesus will return as the Messiah. And it will dawn on them as someone mourning the loss of their one and only Son, that they have slain the one and only Son of God, the one and only Messiah. And they, out of fear that they've missed it, will cry out for mercy to Him. This is going to happen some day. They will mourn their sin in the presence of the one that their fathers slew. They will look upon Him whom they've pierced. And what will be the response of them looking upon Him whom they've pierced? This is where we will end up uh, this evening. In Romans chapter 11. No holding other pages anymore. Just Romans 11. And I wish we had the time just to go through this whole uh, chapter. It would be wonderful, but I'm not going to do that to you. But Romans 11 in verse uh, number 26 uh, is significant. And I assure you I'm not taking this out of context. You can look in your own time to, um, to, to make sure of that if you wish. But it says in verse number 26, And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, They shall come out of Zion, the Deliverer, and shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. Now we, in this age of grace, we are enjoying the fruits of being grafted into God's program of grace in the New Covenant. We are so blessed, people. You have no idea how blessed we are. We have no idea. We live in a day when Jew and Gentile alike on an individual basis may come into the kingdom together. But there is coming a day when the new covenant is truly fulfilled in its totality. It will come to a total fruition when there is a mass conversion that takes place among Israel as a whole, as a nation, and they finally embrace their God and their Messiah as Lord and Savior and King. Can you imagine a national conversion? It's, it's almost akin to Jonah when he came to Nineveh that time and the whole entire city converted in that moment. Can you imagine the whole nation of Israel embracing Christ as Savior? You know what? I want that for Him. I think He deserves that. I want that for Him. It's going to happen. They're going to embrace Him as their Messiah, as Lord and Savior, as their God. And Jesus looks ahead in time and says, here's a little bit of comfort. You see, they missed out. He was merely giving them a future hope prepared for a future generation. But as New Testament believers, every single one of us here this evening must ask ourselves these questions. What about us? What about now? What are we doing with Jesus? Israel completely bottled it. They had the Messiah. He presented Himself as King. And they bottled it. You're just like me. You deserve to be cast into God's prison. You're just like me. You are a lawbreaker. 
And you're just like me. Your case can be dismissed when you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation by faith. You see, Israel put the Messiah to death. They rejected Him. And Jesus basically declared upon them, Ichabod. No glory. The glory departed. And that's all that awaits any of us without the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way that this story turns out without Jesus. It's Ichabod for all of us without the Lord Jesus. And that's all that awaits. But it doesn't have to be that way. The Bible tells us that God has called all men everywhere to repent. Including every person in this room tonight. Now I think in our day and time there is a common misconception about um, what religion really is and where its place is. You know, I hear people say, I'm a pet peeve guy, right? There, there are some things that are pet peeves to me that, that bother me. One thing that bothers me is when someone says, um, well, I don't believe in religion. I believe in a relationship. Um, I'm pretty sure we're called to believe in both. Um, but the problem is, and I don't understand where people are coming from. We're not religious like other religions are. The problem is when people get the cart before the horse. Right? That's, that's, that's where the problem comes in. Because a lot of people have this idea that they can prepare themselves for a relationship with God. So I clean myself up well enough. I get all my affairs in order. I clean myself up and I present myself ready to have a relationship with God. Because all of my affairs are in order. But that's getting the cart before the horse. You don't have a relationship with God because you're religious. You can only be religious in the true biblical sense if you have a relationship with God. You see, salvation is not something that works from the outside in. We don't clean ourselves up because we can't, because the Bible says there is none good, no, not one. We can't clean ourselves up. We are all as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You cannot clean yourself from the outside in. You can only be cleaned from the inside out. So don't try to have a relationship with God based upon your good works. Do good works based upon your relationship with God. Salvation works from the inside out. And the Pharisees didn't get that, did they? They thought that they had set everything up for the Messiah to come. They had everything in order. And surely He would come and He would say, Alright, you Pharisee, and you Pharisee, and you scribe, and you Pharisee, come be My disciples. And what did Jesus do? He said, you fisherman, and you terrorist, and you tax collector, you sinners, come to Me and have a relationship with Me. Don't get the cart before the horse. And you know what? What Jesus was giving Israel in that time when He said, you know, I will not see you again until you say, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He was giving them a future hope for a future generation. But true believers in the New Testament sense, we have a future hope as a present possession. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? 
It's not a future hope for a future generation. It's a future hope as a present possession. So we have it now. It is a reality to us now. Yes, it will happen in the future, but it is a reality to us now. What's God going to do someday? Someday God is going to make all things new. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And that new heaven and the new earth will be completely devoid of all of the consequences of sin because the sin curse is going to be removed. Listen, you're talking about the lady in your church that's, that's very poorly right now. Peggy, is that her name? You know, in heaven, there'll be nothing like that. There'll be no pain for Peggy in heaven. You know, not long ago, Amanda's mom passed away from cancer. She's not experiencing a lick of pain in heaven. Not one bit of pain. Because all of the consequences of sin have been taken away eternally, irrevocably. We're talking about perfection. A world where the sin curse never messed a single thing up. Why? Because it's a place where God resides. Do you see that? We have a future hope as a present possession because of Him and Him alone. Him and Him alone. Here's a question. If Jesus is the King that we believe Him to be, why don't we live like it? Why don't we live like it? Why do we allow other things to control our lives instead of the King? If Jesus is the King, why do we allow everything else to motivate us? Why do we make decisions based upon uh, finances or education rather than uh, decisions based upon spirituality? You know, before you ever go to an area and say, I'm going to move to an area for XYZ, you need to look ahead and say, is there a local church that I can plug into and plug my family into? This should be the motivating factor for all of the things that we do in life. Every major decision in life should resound with the theme of the king and his kingdom. Jesus is king, therefore. Now that's good preaching, but that's really hard living. I understand that. But if Jesus is the, one who's going to, the king who's going to make all things right, John Wycliffe put it this way. He said, I believe in the end the truth will conquer. And someday Jesus is going to make all things right. He's the King that will renew everything. Why don't we live like it? Why don't we live like He's King? We have a future hope as a present possession. It's ours if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. And it can be yours if you don't. It's all in your hands. Israel bottled it. Don't do the same. Yeah. May God bless these.